Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services, for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today I have with me Eric Liget. He has created the program Fathers with Voices, and he did this in the summer of 1996 after a childhood friend of his was experiencing difficulties within the family court system. His friend did not receive the proper assistance regarding maintaining a relationship with his child. And unfortunately, he decided to walk away to avoid causing any trouble and to not have to deal with the court system anymore. Leggett asked himself how many men were forced to make a similar decision and how many programs in New York could assist someone like that. Uh, to his surprise, that many fathers were also having the same difficulty navigating the court system. And he is now the co-founder of good fatherhood forever. Now, during this time, Mr. Leggett was also dealing with his own custody battle with his own daughter and had to go through a an entire visitation case, which he actually ended up winning full custody of his daughter, which is an amazing feat in today's world with men and, and, and mothers and fathers. Usually mothers are the ones that um, receive that and uh, through that, he also wrote a book that is called The Ten Warning Signs, Is Your Date a Deadbeat or Deadly? And we will definitely get into that book and the 10 behaviors, characteristics, and statements that single women should pay attention to while dating so everybody can avoid having to deal with the court systems and the family court systems and not having to put their child through that. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Appreciate it. Of course. I'm glad to have you. So let's go back a little bit. Let's start with your childhood. What was it like growing up for you that um, kind of middle school, high school age, you know, really where your personality and your traits really start to form? Well, I, I went through a lot of being made fun of um, because of my very fair skin complexion. I've I've since grown, you know, become a little darker. But back then I was very fair skinned with reddish blonde hair. So I went through a lot of being made fun of because of the way I looked. That was pretty much from elementary school until about my sophomore year in high school. And my mother she went through something similar too, because my mother was, you know, fair skinned and she had the reddish blonde hair. And I remember my mother saying to me, until you accept yourself, no one else will. And I would ask her questions like, you know, because my brother, my older brother was brown skinned and I would ask her questions like, you know, why did he come out so perfect? And I came out so ugly. And then the summer of, um, my sophomore year, I, I grew from five foot five to five eleven in two months. <laughs> and God gives you what you need at the right time, and the height gave me confidence. And then that's when I started to really kind of 
you know, one day I just woke up and said, Eric, you know what? You're different. Your hair is brown. You're light skinned. Your, you know, your eyes is a certain color, whatever. Accept yourself fully and just go on with your life. And then that's when my life began to really, really change. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that it's it's really awesome when one parents can have that impact on their kids, you know, because all of us were kids, you know, and right. I don't have kids yet, but you have kids and you know right. that all of them are like, oh, it doesn't, whatever you say doesn't matter, right? It, it doesn't actually, you know, they could, you could say whatever you want, but they'd have to hear it from someone else to believe it to be true. Right. And right. Um, so I think it's amazing that, you know, your mom was, you know, able to just keep pushing and, and pushing right. until you, you got it, you, know, you understood right. that, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like right. in, in right. that and mm-hmm. something else that I also found interesting in today's society with, you know, and I, I don't really get into politics or anything like that. It's just something that struck me as interesting that, you know, being, you know, an African-American and thinking my brother came out perfect and he has got dark skin and, you know, but in today's society, like nobody with dark skin thinks that they're perfect. Right. And, right. and I think that's, it just struck me as really awesome that like you had that yeah. vision of, you know, mm-hmm. he's amazing even with dark skin. Right. Right. My mom was um, very instrumental in building my self-esteem. She really focused on those, those things that I did well, like writing and reading. My dad came from the musical side. My dad bought me my first instrument and he was the one that, he saw that level of talent in me. So you had two parents that saw two different things in one child and made sure that that, that child had what he needed. And being able to do those things that people in my neighborhood couldn't do, like I taught myself how to play the bass guitar and the drums and the keyboards, people in my neighborhood couldn't do that. So that was my, I gotcha, you know, type of moment, you know? And so they were very instrumental in, in helping me through that, you know, navigate that, that difficult, you know, childhood to adolescent, you know, preteen stage of my life. That's awesome. I think that that's really amazing, especially the work that you're in now, you know, where you mm-hmm. see, you know, one parent or the other stepping out or leaving and, you know, not wanting to have a role in their child's life. It's, you know, Right. Do you, do you kind of feel like an anomaly that you had both parents there loving you or do you see both sides of it? Well, I'm a little bit older than you. I grew up in a community in Brooklyn, New York, where two parent family was kind of the norm. I'm in Brooklyn, New York during that time, during the 70s and 80s. My mom was the only stay at home mom. But in my neighborhood, you know, I would say the majority of my friends came from two parent homes. So, you know, it it was the norm back then. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. It's definitely uh, changed. In this, oh, it's not the same now. But. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so you got your confidence in high school, you know, in the middle of high school and that, you know, you were able to kind of realize that, it didn't matter, you know, your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, as long as you were you, 
it, mm -hmm. you know, it would be easier for other people to accept you. So did that kind of then shape you're like, did you, uh, you know, go into college or not going to college or, you know, kind of your career path prior to where you're at now? Well, it did shape me and, and growing up in my household, my household was, I watched two, two people invest a lot in people. My, my parents have been foster parents for over 40 years. I have two adoptive brothers. When Facebook became very, very popular, so many people reached out to my mom to say, you know, thank you for doing this or thank you for doing that. So I, I grew up, I grew up seeing examples of investing in people. And and I think what it did for me, because I went through so much with, with people not accepting me without even getting to know me. It created a level of empathy in me. So I'm not surprised that I'm, I'm doing the type of work that I'm doing right now, because in order to do human services, you have to have the characteristics that fits under the guidelines of serving, being empathetic, non-judgmental, being sympathetic, being encouraging, um, giving a dose of reality when, when needed, you know, you have to have those, those those type of characteristics in order to connect to people. So that's where I would say those characteristics and those things that I went through, you know, at a younger age, I, I'm not surprised to where I'm at right now. I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, I 100 percent agree that, you know, you have to have that. My husband's military. We're both former police officers. So we definitely understand that mindset of wanting to serve. And then, you know, obviously with the nonprofit and, and turning that right. into, to what we're doing now, right. um, I, I definitely agree with that. So when, you know, when you were 18, did you know exactly what you wanted to do or did you kind of have that? No, what was what was that decision like or that moment in time like for you? Absolutely not. 18 <laughs> I had no clue. The only thing I I was really into was music. I was in college and I wanted to be the next Teddy Riley. <laughs> I wanted to be a great music producer. I was really good at what I was doing. I was even offered a record contract a producer but I turned it down which was is another story in itself I, I didn't really know I went to I went to college for two years then I took three years off to work and then I went back to school at 23 and then that's when I realized that I wanted to do something in the human services field so I really didn't really find myself till around 23 yeah till I was 23 years old mm-hmm I, and that's not, you know, unusual at all. Even in this day and age, there are 25 year olds that are having, you know, these midlife crises, right. you know, right. that, because they were forced to pick a career at 18. When, when's the last time any 18 year old knew what they wanted to do with their life? You know, It's, it's not many, it's not many. And even with today, with the change in climate in the economy that people, you know, as old as 40, around my age, 
that I'm making career change. I'm in transition right now, to be honest with you. I left teaching. So I'm in transition right now and, and just, you know, not so much figuring out. I know what I want to do. It's just kind of scary because it's more entrepreneurial. So I have to have two or three backup plans instead of just relying on one. So it's, it's, it's just not unusual. It's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and you know, I've had this conversation with a few people on my, on my show before of, you know, is, is college at 18, the right decision? Should we be, you know, telling kids to go to college and, and be forcing this on them or kind of just let them, you know, maybe create programs that just allow them to explore different options for the first couple years of college versus just having to go straight into a career right. choice. Right, right. And I, I've had this discussion with my daughter. My daughter wants to do, wants to be a real estate agent. So when you're a real estate agent, you really don't need a college degree, but she does want to take business courses and, and that's fine. College is not for everybody. It's not. And it doesn't mean that they're a lower uh, in, in intelligence or anything. It, it just doesn't fit for everybody, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. So I, I agree with that. I agree with you that that teenagers should be given more options other than college. College is not the end all be all. It's not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I went I went to college, got a four year degree in criminal justice, and I'm not doing anything with it, <laughs> you know. Well, and I mean, I, no, and I and I I, cho I totally understand. I mean, I love masters, the masters program. I love that. I mean, I almost got emotional when I graduated because I I just love the learning. I'm an avid reader. So and, and when you take your master's courses, you're, you're basically reading and, and, and doing, you know, these different types of, you know, not reports, but is it reports? Yeah. So that falls right into my my lane. So I, I enjoyed master's degree, the master's degree program, because it was so much relevant knowledge. I got to really understand what makes a good teacher and what makes an ineffective teacher, what makes a great leader, what makes a bad leader. That's, that's, in, that's, that's great stuff to learn when you're an, an educator. So the, the, the four year degree, I mean, that, that was okay. The master's program was, was, was the best. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's very niche down. So it's exactly right. what you want to learn, not, you know, all these random things that they force right. you to learn. So I definitely right. agree with that. So at 23, you went back to college. What did you go get your degree in? Sociology. Okay. Sociology. Mm -hmm. And you said that you, so you're transitioning from being a teacher. How did all of that, you know, let, like, let's go into your, your, your mid twenties, late twenties. What, what was that part of your life like? And how did you become a teacher then? Or was that later on in life? Well, that was later on. That was just recently over the last 10 years. Once I graduated with, with my BA in sociology, I went straight to work in human services at a foster, very you know, prominent foster care agency in Brooklyn, New York. And I loved it. I really did. I enjoyed it. 
it's weird because <laughs> it's weird because with, with foster care, it can be very, very stressful because there's things always going on. And I remember my coworker, a coworker said, why is it that you always look so calm and we're so frazzled? It's because I, I perform better in chaos. <laughs> I just do. I mean, if it's a lot going on, once I get a handle on the schedule, I'm fine, okay? It, I just work better that way. I mean, it, it just, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just wired that way. So I loved it. And I did that for about, I did that for about four years. And then I actually got a job working at a very prominent fatherhood program that was one of the first in, in Harlem, New York City. It was a young fatherhood program. And it was a wonderful program we actually moved to a building on 125th street we were we were one floor below bill clinton when bill clinton left office he had an office in our building and the day that he came downstairs to meet our program i was out because i had to take my daughter <laughs> i had to take my daughter to a doctor's appointment i come back and i see all these pictures of of people with Bill Clinton on walls and stuff. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me, you know? And because we always was there because they would close down certain elevators. There were certain elevators that we couldn't, we was like, oh, okay, Bill is here today. We can't, we can't take this elevator, you know, that type of thing. And the one day that I was not there, he comes downstairs introduces himself to everybody at the program and I'm not there. So <laughs> it is what it is, man. <laughs> I see you're definitely over it though. You, you got no, yeah, no hard feelings I'm, about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm over it. Back then I was a mess, but I, I'm over it now. I'm over it. I'm over awesome. It. So is that kind of what led you into, you know, your, you know, that the, your friend knowing or knowing your friend and knowing the way that the court system works, did that kind of spur the, the movement that you've got going on? Or was that again, later on in life? Mm -mm. No, that, that happened in 1996. What I was just sharing with you that happened around the year 2000. So I had kind of, we're going, you know, flip-flopping, but with my friend, yeah, it was just very strange because it was, he didn't tell me about it. It was his fiance. And I grew up with both of them. And, and she just was very, she was destroyed because she felt like, you know, they wanted to get married, but the stress of him not being able to see his son was taking a toll on, on the relationship. So when, when people share things with me, I always, I start to think, and I started thinking, well, how many men were going through this? And then the next thing you know, I, I developed what, I, what you call a, a needs assessment questionnaire. And what I did was I distributed amongst people in my neighborhood just to find out, well, if I did, is a program needed for men that's dealing with this? And the response was overwhelming. So then I was part of, of some type of, uh, it was like a, like a, like a, a, 
business type of course that last, lasted for about six weeks for people who had ideas for programs and businesses. And then that's where I was able to learn how to put together a mission statement and objectives and goals. And that's where, you know, Fathers with Voices was born. It was born there. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that it's so important to have that around. I think that it's just, <clears throat> you know, I know several, several men who are fighting that system right now, trying to get just, you know, mm-hmm. partial custody, you know, half and right. half. And, and, right. and it's, it, you know, it boggles my mind that, you know, women will sit there and, you know, I'm a woman, you know, and I, you know, no, you know, I know that they're not all like this, but you know, you have some women out there that will just hound men for money, but then will refuse them, them to see their yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. And you can't have it both ways. You can't sit there and, you know, expect them to participate from a distance. If you right. want them in their lives in one way, you have to accept the other ways that they want to be in their life. Yeah. So I think that it's, extremely important with what you're doing right right and you know are you still okay something is saying can you still see me yep yeah you're good good so you know the joke is i i I became followers with voices first client (laughs) my daughter was two years old and two months after the inception of following voices i had to go to court and advocate for my daughter and it was by far, even to this day, the most painful experience I've ever endured. But it was a great learning experience. And my mom, again, said, Eric, take a journal of what you're doing, what you're going through. And I did. And I took note of all the things that I did to make the court system look at me in a more favorable light. And that, you know, that included, you know, coming to all the court cases, being dressed appropriately, not losing my temper in the face of allegations. And these are all the things that I was complimented on by the judge to the point where he said, you know, he told my lawyer, he said he handled himself. very well. So it was that type of information that I went ahead and that became the the foundation of false with voices as far as information. And I just passed that along to other men that wasn't that was about to become part of the court system. And it's worked out. I've I've been fortunate enough to help a lot of men obtain their visitation rights and joint custody and joint legal custody and custody of their children. So it, it, it's, it's been pretty awesome, it has. I, I love that. I think that, you know, it's, it's sad in one sense that, you know, a mom can walk into court in a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, get hysterical and upset and make all these false allegations and it mm-hmm. doesn't matter, right? They can still get custody, but, you know, mm-hmm. men have to be on their absolute best behavior dressed yeah. to the nines and, you know, not have a lick of emotion going right. through, you know, something that is very emotional, right? That's your, that's your kid that, and especially, you know, if you've been in their life prior, 
or, mm-hmm. or anything, you know, you're not just, you know, coming in because maybe you just found out you had a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you know, it's just a very emotional time. And to expect, you know, that's that toxic masculinity that we've got going on in this society of you're not mm-hmm. allowed to show emotion as a man. You're not allowed to do all of this stuff as a man. You've got to be, you know, that mm-hmm. strong willed, you know, right. Right. heartless basically right. Uh, person. And right. so, you know, it's, I'm glad that there's the program to, to just, you know, make it pop, you know, helping men navigate through mm-hmm. this society, but it's also disheartening that it's even needed. It is, it is. And, and you mentioned that you, you know, a couple of men, please refer them to me. If, if, if you, if you want to, you can refer them to me and I can see what I could do to help them. Because what I realized with for men to be successful in the court system, it's it's you you teach you you're reprogramming the man's mind to understand that first you have to approach it like Jermaine Jackson's only musical hit in his life. Don't take it personal. Okay. That was before your time. Okay. You can't take it personal. It is a court system that is motivated by money okay if they made the sides even for both people judges are not going to make any money referees are not going to make any money law guardians are not going to make any money the district attorneys are not going to make any money they have to create an uneven system to keep that machine going so my job is to teach men how to offset that through their behavior and through their preparation. And the format has worked. I have not deviated from my format for the past 20 years. I'm not one of those type of people that, okay, let's try something new. You know, that's why I left education because that's what they do. They keep trying these different things on these kids like they're robots instead of just sticking to one thing and letting their mind become accustomed and grasp that and then let them go on. No, they keep changing. They keep changing. They keep, no, that's why I didn't fit in the education. Okay. I stayed in one place because my thing was, okay, I accomplished getting high standardized test scores. Why are you telling me to change something? When I mean, when it makes sense to say, okay, you know, Mr. Leggett, Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, those test scores are very high. No, they want you to go to, you know, to, to try this particular teaching method and that teaching method and this process. No, uh-uh. I stay right where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever, if you want to, you, you, you can feel free to refer them to me. That's fine. Definitely. You know, I think it's, again, I, I, I applaud what you're doing and I think that it's, it is much needed you know, luckily the the few that I know have, you know, their, their stuff is, is completed and they were awarded full custody of their kids. And, and, and there's that, but of course, you know, always, if I come across anybody, right. I, I think it's always needed. And, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of resources out there for men who want to actually get full custody of their kids. Right, right, right. So let's go into a little bit of, you know, fast forward a little bit. So you, you went, you, you did, you know, you started Fathers with Voices and then 
how did that transition into Good Fatherhood Forever? Well, Good Fatherhood Forever was something that I did with a partner. Um, I, 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 I'm not as invested in it now as I was two or three years ago because I let my partner take that on. So I, that, I don't know if that shouldn't have been in the bio. Um, but no, I'm sorry about that. But it was, it's still a great program. It's just that it went into a different direction and I went into another direction, but I still support it. Gotcha. Okay. That's all good. So how did you get into teaching? That was by accident. <laughs> that was by accident. I, when I was in education, I, I performed different non-teaching positions. One of them was, I was in what they call an in-school suspension leader. And despite, you know, reducing the amount of students that was referred to the program, they got rid of the program. So I went to go apply at another school. And this particular school I had applied for, I forgot what type of position was, but the principal remembered me. And long story short, he was like, we have a social studies position available. I want you to interview so on and so forth. And long story short, I got hired as a middle school social studies teacher. And then after that, they did some transitions in the school. And again, I was laid off. So I was like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go uh, get my master's degree. I'm going to go to school full time. And I took a non-teaching position so I could focus on graduate school full time. And I was doing uh, teacher assistant for exceptional children. And it was by far the best four years of my life in education, working with those kids in elementary school. It was very rewarding, but I left after 2018. I will have another book coming out detailing my experiences. <laughs> because that's how I deal with things. Because there were a lot of things, there's a lot of things that going on in education that you know the general public need to become aware of um, because it's detrimental to our children. So as you can see, my MO seems to be doing things that ruffles people's feathers a little bit. That's just the way it is. I don't know why, but that particular book is going to be, it's going to be an eye opener. So, you know, that's how I got into to teaching. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think that that is, you know, definitely something that's needed. My mom and my sister both work in the school district and, mm -hmm. you know, my mom has experienced a lot of racial inequalities through the school system a hundred percent, you know, and so, but you know, it's, it's really hard to fight that, you know, even mm -hmm. though it's a, a public system, they mm -hmm. still have things in place where it's hard to fight, you know, that, those battles. It is. And, and another thing that, that a lot of, of mainstream society is not aware of is something called administrative bullying. And this is where we lose a lot of great teachers. And that's the reason why parents need to be concerned because the problem with education is 
they don't understand that they are human services. Education is still human services. And the problem with education is, is that they, they're very good at pointing out data, but they don't always follow the data. And especially when it comes to things that have nothing to with, when it comes to achievement, they're going to follow the data. When it comes to things like uh, students going through anxiety, they don't acknowledge that. Okay, anxiety is a real problem for children because of the, 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 the tremendous amount of work and responsibilities that's on students, okay? They don't acknowledge bullying in terms of the statistical data and understanding that it has to be addressed quarterly instead of instead of of, of like a day-to-day type of, of basis as far as case by case. So that was my problem with education. I left education because I saw a pattern. And my mother always said, pay attention to patterns. And if it's negative, get out of it. I saw a pattern and I said, okay, I can't be a part of this because you can't, you can't expect someone to come to school and give 110%, but you're making your decisions based on whether I like you. That has no place because there's human beings involved, you know, and that's what I want to bring out in my next book because it's a systematic problem. And, and it has to be fixed. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that. Speaking of books, let's go into the book that you have out now. What is it called and what is it about? 10 Warning Signs is your date, a deadbeat or deadly. It's about domestic violence prevention. And it's me introducing one particular term, DBDP deadbeat dad potential and i learned about of men through fathers with voices okay this is a small population of men who will contact my program and make statements like well mr leggett i heard about your program i need some help and i go well what do you need help with whatever and it was always related to child and they would say things like well I told her when we started dating, I didn't want any children. So in other words, you have a population of men who are thinking like this, that their thinking is, okay, if you decide to have that child, that's on you. That's your responsibility, okay? The reason why that's a problem is because single mothers are being murdered by their children's fathers. They're involved in child support cases. They're involved in custody cases. So my book is to say to single dating women, let's look at these signs before you become intimate with these men. And if you see these signs, pull away. Because you don't know which way this man is going to go. Because you have men that are out here dating and their mindset is, and I have to be crass to make this point. Their mindset is, as long as I'm wearing a condom, I'm good. So if you become pregnant, that's not on me. That's on you. 
And what happens, the, 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 the reality is, once the, once the woman decides to have the baby, that's where it can go to a violent level because she will eventually, in many cases, go and take him for child support. In the book, I reference different horrific stories of women being murdered by their children's fathers. And one story was a man who drove from Texas to California. And once he got to the mother's job, the mother of his three children who he was paying child support for, he shot and killed her in front of all of her coworkers. And at the bottom of the, the news article, it said he felt that he was paying too much child support. So that's the reason why I wrote the book. It is time I want women to become very proactive because this is a this is a different demographic of men that a lot of people don't even know exists as it relates to domestic violence. And that's why this, this book is so important to me. And, and I have daughters, you know, who are of the age of dating and I would hate for them to, to meet this type of man who, who thinks this way. Definitely. So what are some, without giving away the whole book, <laughs> what mm. are a couple of those signs that, you know, uh, a few like that that women should right off the bat just walk away one is there's a chapter called 30 going on 15 this is that man who is showing you by the way he dresses by the way he articulates himself he's not very responsible so on and so forth that's a de definite warning sign you're not on that same maturity level. So if you're not on that same maturity level, when it comes to aspects of real life adult issues, like the possibility of, of pregnancy, you're, you know, you're not on the same page. So that's definitely a warning sign. He doesn't have any type of plan for the future. He's just out there. He's just living day by day. He, he doesn't have any dreams. He doesn't have any goals. He articulates, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying life. No, that's a definite warning sign. Because again, if you become intimate with this man and become pregnant, how is he going to take care of that child? Is he going to show up to take care of that child? Chances are he won't because he's showing you right then and there that, you know, he's just not being very, very responsible. He doesn't have a great, uh, relationship with his child's mother. That's a big warning sign. If he articulates, well, you know, we don't get along. So what I do is I just pay the child support and I just leave it alone. Okay. So if he's doing that to her, who's to say he's not going to do the same thing to you? So these are just, these are just very simple warning signs that has to do with with listening and observing behaviors. The, the goal of the book is to save future lives. That's the goal of the book. And it's something that, again, is very personal to me because unfortunately, throughout my life, I've met so many women that were domestic violence victims. And now with me having daughters, it's even more personal to me because 
what I am seeing is that demographic of young men between the ages of 19 till about 30 who don't seem to do well with, with, re with rejection. You know, coming across all these articles of women saying, I don't want to see you anymore, and then they end up murdering them. Okay? Women have to become more proactive because whenever people are dying, you have to become proactive and learn how to protect yourself. I definitely agree with that. Have you, or do you have, you know, what if, what if these women get into this relationship, they end up pregnant. Do you have advice for them on, you know, if that happens and, you know, they, there were these signs, but maybe it was, you know, one night stand that turned into a pregnancy. Do you have advice on how to have them navigate that type of situation? Well, my advice to them, first of all, is to make sure that they, they have support family members, friends, let them know what's going on. If the man is articulating that he does not want to be responsible, I would say, you know, she has to make that decision whether or not she wants to push for child support, but she has to be very mindful that when child support steps in, a lot of times with child support, they will take out a lot more then the man is ready to give. And then that's, that's, where the, that's where those violent tendencies come from. So if she were to do that, what I would recommend it is, is if she can work something out with him financially without having to take him fully into the system. And I've shared this with men. I've actually had cases where men have said to me, well, she wants $300 a month. I said, take that deal. Take it. Okay. Because if she takes you for child support, that three is going to turn to 500 or 600. They didn't listen. They will come back to me. What am I going to do? She took me to child support. They're charging me $600 a month. You know, it's, it's very disturbing, you know, so I would say, try to, you know, say, you know, encourage her to say, well, if you can just give me, you know, money for Pampers formula every month, let's start there. Baby steps. Okay. And then just take it from there, you know? Um, so that would be my advice is to just try to make sure you have your support system. And number two, starting out, just do something small. Pampered, formula, crib, you know, those little small items, you know, every month, and then just kind of work, work your way up from there. Mm. Definitely. I think that, you know, I, I, my, one of my best friends, her, the father of her child, you know, she did the same thing. She's like, I just want like this much will get me, you know, get us through and he's got, you know, they, they've got joint custody. So it's mm. not a, a huge, it wasn't a huge amount or anything like that. And he refused to take it and she took him to court and it was not, you know. It was a lot more. It was a lot more, a lot it, more. It was and, a lot more. And that's why I would always tell men, go ahead and, and, and take what she's offering 
and and because you don't once you're in the system the only way you're going to get out of the system is if the mother come to court and says i don't need child support anymore and i've had cases where women have done that and the judge still said okay no we don't care that you don't need it anymore which is very strange to me um but that's another that's another show in itself so it's it's very important that men understand you don't want to be in the system and for women is to if they're not have if they don't have any children right now make sure that you're paying attention to these warning signs do not become intimate with the with men very quickly and this way if you see these warning signs you can just turn around and walk away definitely i i definitely agree with that Wrapping up, is there anything that we did not hit on that you think is really important for the listeners to know about or hear from you? What I think is very important is we we have to get back to the basics of prevention. We have to really become very pre- uh, preventive because I am I'm just seeing too many stories about domestic violence especially with with COVID-19, domestic violence have increased globally. And we have to figure out a way to become a little bit more aggressive in the preventive side of domestic violence. And I I want to do my part through, through this book. I really want this book to reach the hands of as many women as possible because it is a tremendous problem and I don't want to continue to read stories of single mothers losing losing their lives over this. It's not necessary. And the natural progression of a program is to go from advocacy to prevention. And that's where Fathers with Voices is. So we have to become more aggressive when it comes to prevention. Definitely. I 100% agree with everything that mm-hmm. you're saying. I think that it's it's so important and, you know, that surviving and thriving is not on the prevention side, but, but we kind of are because we do a lot of educational pieces as well, sure. you know, and, and I think that it's, it's really, really important that we try to get ahead of this. You know, we're, we're in the schools, we're, we're doing teen violence, teen dating violence courses and all of this stuff to, to kind of stop that, you know, that mm-hmm. those behaviors before they become deadly. Right. right. And okay. I, yeah, so I think prevention is definitely a huge part of, you know, fixing this problem and ending right. domestic violence. So we've got a few questions that we ask every guest that come on the show. And the first one is, what are your goals for the next year? Well, one of my goals is I'm considering starting a nonprofit based on the book. I'm fleshing that out right now because I really want to, similar to you, I want to kind of go, go into the venues of high schools and colleges and universities and women's groups, because I think my book is relevant to all of those um, demographics. So that's, that's my main goal. And my main goal also is to start a, a campaign. I'm working on a campaign called AQBI, which is ask questions before intimacy. And this is a this is a, a campaign that I hope will become national, that will become trending because 
this is an extension of Fathers with Voices where I learned the reason why people get involved in these baby mama, baby daddy drama scenarios is that they didn't ask grown people questions before they started having sex. So after, after everything happened with the child being born and they realized they didn't have a lot in common, they were in court because they didn't know each other's uh, future goals or career goals. They didn't know about the religion. They didn't know about parenting seed is going to be a platform that will provide these important questions for people to ask before becoming intimate and, and, and later on affecting them, you know, socially, uh, economically and physically and emotionally. So those, those are my goals for the next year. Fantastic. I think that they are great goals. And I think that it's, you know, again, needed and Mm -hmm. there can't be, I don't think there can be too many resources out there for um, people in these situations. So I think that is amazing. Um, The next Mm -hmm. question is what would the new you say to the old you? The new me would say to the old you, be more optimistic instead of pessimistic. That is, you know, I'm always a person that likes to self-reflect and self-evaluate. And that is an area of my life that I'm starting to see some great improvement in because I believe a lot of my pessimistic attitudes in my younger years stopped me from some very, very great opportunities. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, you know, really important for, you know, people to hear for sure. You know, a lot of times we do have missed opportunities because we look at, you know, the, and that's, it's human nature to look at the downside of it, right? Your body is going to protect you from everything. So it's going to tell you all the cons that are associated with whatever you're dealing with. And you have to, you know, get that mindset to look at the pros and accept the pros and, and, you know, maybe, you know, try to accept the risk that is going on. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And the, so the next question is, what is something that helps you get through a tough situation? I have a lot of coping mechanisms, prayer, writing, music. I have a lot of different prayer, writing, music, listening to music, creating music, writing music, um, taking long walks. I'm somebody that would get in my car and drive for 45 minutes, just take a nice long drive in the evening time with the windows down and the music playing. So I have all these different things to do that kind of, you know, winds me down a little bit. Yeah. Definitely. I, I, I'm definitely one of those people that likes to get on, you know, get in the car or, you know, my, my husband rides motorcycles. So we'll jump on the back of a motorcycle and just ride. Definitely a huge stress reliever. What is other than your own, (laughs) what is a book, podcast, ebook, uh, quote, anything that kind of helped you get into that mindset of, you know, creating your own business and, and your own, you know, all these other entities that you've got going on or just kind of gets you motivated or through these maybe tough decisions in your life? 
there is a book that was very impactful to me. I can't remember the full. Yeah, I remember the title. It's called Against All Odds. It was written by um, John Johnson, the creator of Ebony Magazine. That book was very instrumental in terms of shaping how I thought, think about business and how important it is to create something that not uh, not only allows you a, a kind of a source of income, but more importantly, the impact it's going to have on a lot of people. And it's a very great book. I refer to it a lot. There's another book called Think and Grow Rich by Dennis Kimbrough. That is something that I have referred to a lot. And, and there's just so many books that I can I can name, but those 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 are the two main books, especially Thinking Grow Rich by Dennis Kimbrough. That is yes, yeah, fantastic mm -hmm. book. I uh, I think it's a really good one. And then finally, what again? What is the name of your book, and where can people find it? And then also, where can people find you and more information about you? Okay. Sure, the book can be found right now on Amazon.com. I have a, a book landing page named 10warningsigns.net. And it's 10warningsigns with an S.net. I also want to put this out there for all people, and they're going to see this on the landing page. I've created a partnership with a, pro, with a company called ticketsatwork.com. And if you go to that website, it's a, it's a company that provides a lot of discounts on just about everything you can name from um, movie tickets to hotel rentals to car rentals. I mean, to hotel stays, to car rentals, everything. So if you send the screenshot that you purchased the book, I will give a corporate name because it's under my program. I will give the corporate code name and you will have access to all of those discounts accounts free of charge. So I wanted to do something to, to give back, to say thank you for supporting me and, and believing in my product. Awesome. That is really, that's really amazing to be able mm -hmm. to do that. And, and I think that is, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think, you know, yeah. I had a blast talking to you and I think that you've got a lot of good things going on and a lot of great information to spread. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for the opportunity and peace and blessings to you and your husband. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O thriving ATL, or online at 2thriving.org.